Welcome to BDO Talks ERISA, a monthly podcast from BDO's ERISA Center of Excellence. Each month, we will be talking best practices around all things ERISA, how to avoid common compliance issues, how to navigate the tricky ins and outs of ERISA's fiduciary provisions, and discussing our own experiences working for BDO's ERISA Services Group and the insights we share through the ERISA Center of Excellence. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes or Spotify. Let's get started. Welcome to another podcast for BDO Talks ERISA. I'm Beth Garner. I'm the National Practice Leader for our Employee Benefit Plan Audit Group and a partner here at BDO. We are excited to have you join us today. As we have said before, this podcast is an extension of our BDO ERISA Center of Excellence. You know, we developed the podcast to expand on topics and issues that we bring to you through our social media postings on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook, and our quarterly ERISA Roundup. The goal of our Center of Excellence is to truly help any plan sponsor and anyone charged with governance of their retirement plan with up-to-date information on what's truly going on in the industry. We know these professionals wear many hats within their organization, and our Center of Excellence can be a place to quickly get up-to-date information to help them with their responsibilities. So today, we're going to discuss changes in the benefit area relating to healthcare. Hot topic, of course. One responsibility of HR you know, professionals is being involved in the medical benefits being offered by, you know, to the employees, from open enrollment to decisions regarding service providers to changes in any of the benefits. You know, there were many new rules and regulations um, that were modified over this past year. So we wanted to spend some time getting familiar with those changes. Items that we're going to cover include transparency and coverage, no surprises acts, volume to value, self-insurance, and the Consolidated Appropriations Act 2021, or called CAA 2021. Joining me today on the podcast, of course, is my co-host, Joanne Zupka. Hello. And hello. And our guest, Vincent Wallen. He is from the BDO Center of Healthcare Excellence and Innovation. His title is National Healthcare Regulatory and Compliance Leader. So, Vincent, welcome and introduce yourself, give some background, some experience to let our audience know that you are the expert. Thank you, Beth. I really appreciate the opportunity to speak with everyone today. Um, I am going into my, well, uh, 35th year of practice um, in healthcare. Uh, started uh, about 27 years with Ernst & Young and then uh, transitioned over to BDO again in the uh, healthcare practice. I've done a little bit of everything from uh, hospitals to skilled nursing facilities to physician practice groups, continuing care retirement communities, insurance plans, uh, done a little bit of all of it. Uh, as we, as Beth said, I am our national healthcare compliance and regulatory leader. So we spent a lot of time in the reimbursement and compliance area, but also uh, I am a CPA and do quite a bit of finance work around feasibility studies, debt capacity studies as, and forecasts as well. So I've done a little bit of everything as it relates to healthcare um, and uh, looking forward to chatting with Beth and with Joanne today. Well, thanks, Vincent, for joining us, and we're really going to put all of that experience to work today. Um, 
you know, summer is fast approaching, and this is the time of year when many companies may be getting ready for open enrollment. So with the thought of summer right around the corner, I want to ask both of you, what's your favorite summer activity? Beth? Well, you're not going to share with us first? Oh, I have no problem. I mean, I could go last, too. Um, I love nothing more than being a beach bum down at the Jersey Shore, so. Nice, nice. Um, and you know, I knew that about you. And I know the month that you actually go. How sad is that? But that's how close we work together. Um, and you know what I'm going to say. My answer is, so, um, Benson, you're obviously new to this, and so you're going to get to know a little bit about us. But basically, I follow my children around all summer. Um, as they swing a baseball bat and chase that um, little white ball around. And um, obviously that means that I stay in Florida a lot, considering that's the Sunshine State and there's a lot of tournaments going on. Well, very good. Um, I love going to the beach during the summer and um, primarily uh, end up down in Myrtle Beach. And uh, we've done that um Growing up, my son, I always had conferences down there, and we would always go uh, the same time every year, and uh, probably for the last 20 years. Last year was actually the first year we didn't make it down there, um, although, as everyone's familiar with, we, we didn't make it all, anywhere last year. Um, but we're looking forward to getting back to it this year and um, getting back down there and enjoying the sun. Hey, man, I, I, I agree. Fantastic. I love all of those responses. Okay, so now let's turn it back to healthcare. Um, the first item of discussion is the final rule regarding transparency coverage for healthcare services. As a reminder, the rule took effect on January 11th, 2021, but there are staggered effective dates for required disclosures through January 1st, 2024. Disclosures are then separated into two categories, disclosures to the public and disclosures to the plan participants. So, Vincent, we were hoping that you could expand on the types of disclosures to plan participants. Yes, happy to do so. Um, so, the, the new transparency rules require that plans must disclose certain information, um, and, and that information would include things like the following, uh, negotiated rates with providers, uh, estimated out-of-pocket expenses for consumers, uh, the consumer's accumulated deductible and or out-of-pocket limits, explanation of in-network rates, and also explanation of out-of-network allowable rates. Ooh, that sounds like a lot of information to gather. So, you know, what do you think about all the services that are, you know, available under a health plan? So, you know, these What's the effective date of all these disclosures? Um, you know, what communication options? Because, you know, we have all different kinds of generations within, you know, a company. And so does the company have to do the disclosure, you know, a certain way? Does it all have to be the same way? You know, can they do one for baby boomers, another for Gen X, you know, X, Z? You know, how does all that work? Well, great questions, um, and, uh, you know, there honestly are a lot of different uh, disclosure requirements within the rule, uh, but generally the disclosure of the plan information that we were just talking about, um, that is for plan years beginning January 1st, 2022. So in the... Oh, okay. So they've got yeah. time, obviously, to get prepared for all this. They do. They do, um, but, you know, time's clicking off, so uh, it never hurts to prepare. 
you're right. You're right. I mean, who would? I mean, good grief! It's already half the year's gone. So, hello. Yeah, I know. I know. It's hard to believe. Um, and and like I said, you know, these things are not things you can just snap your fingers at and and all of a sudden be ready for. So, uh, highly encourage everyone to really start uh, embracing the the rules and understanding what's required. Uh, you know, I mentioned that you need to start disclosing that as of January 1st, 2022. Uh, and there are different forms that you can do that, um, you know, including paper forms and, and things like that. But I will say that uh, the rule also requires that information must be shared uh, in an internet-based self-service tool so that, um, you know, participants can go online um, and actually access all of that plan information um, through a self-service tool that the plan has to provide. Uh, that is beginning January 1st, 2023. So you have a little bit more time, but you know when you're designing those tools and, and everyone you know understands, uh, especially when you're creating a, a web-based tool and ensuring all of the security issues and, and everything that goes along with that, um, you know, now is a much better time to start than, you know, six months before it's actually effective. So start planning for that as well. But don't you think that, you know, if you have a service provider that, that they're going to help provide that web-based um, situation and you really need to partner with them? That is, a, uh, yes, definitely. Um, they should be able to provide that um, that assistance. Uh, but again, I would encourage plans to, you know, have a very thorough understanding of what is required uh, because, yes, the service providers can help you uh, with the design of the tool and things like that. But ultimately, the plan itself is responsible for uh, providing all the information that is required. So you want to make sure that as you're working with your service provider that everything is being addressed as it should be. Right. We have the same thing with retirement plans. That, so, go ahead. Sorry, oh, Joanne. Sorry. Yeah, I just wanted to make sure, because I think I heard two different dates. Um, disclosures are required January 1st, 2022. I'm assuming that may be in paper form, but then you can use the self-service tool effective January 1st, 2023. Did I hear those right? Well, you, you, you did. Uh, what I would say is you could also use if if for whatever reason um, you were able to jump on it and get your service provider to get you up to speed by January 1st, 2022, you could use the self-service tool as well. Uh, but you, you do need to, in some form or fashion, be able to provide that information as of January 1st, 2022. And then January 1st, 2023, you have to use the self-service tool. So we like to design our audits to include what we call no surprises. You know, we have the this No Surprises Act that was included in the Consolidated Appropriations Act that was passed in December 2020. Now, this relates to surprise medical bills that individuals may receive for services they have received. And I can attest that I have received those kind of bills. And I think that if most people that are listening to this could really raise their hand and say, did you get a surprise medical bill? Hallelujah. Yes, everybody did at some point. So, you know, Vincent, can you give us a simple description of this act? Can you, ex you know, expand 
on that, you know, further in detail, any key points that our sponsors of, of these healthcare, you know, plans need to know? Uh, yeah. So um, let's start with the effective date and then we'll um, transition to what it is. Okay. So um, the effective date is January 1st, 2022. And um, the date should sound familiar. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, but really what it is for health plans, um, you know, what you want to do, uh, first of all, the No Surprises Act is just to make sure that um, for the consumer, that they're not surprised with any um, billings, um, balance billings or higher billings or, or something like that for services that they receive. So it's just as it says, no surprises, right? Um, which is good because, you know, as, as a patient uh, or a consumer, you uh, really want to have a better understanding of uh, what your liabilities are, what your deductibles, co-insurance, all that good stuff is. Right. Um, but for health plans, what do we need to do? Um, for health plans, you ought to examine your claims processing policies and procedures um, to ensure that they meet the regulations around um, some of the requirements of the No Surprises Act, such as identification cards, uh, price comparison tools, um, key issues around emergency services and, and payment for um, those services. Uh, those are, are key things that health plans should make themselves very familiar with and, and ensure that they are meeting all of those requirements. Um, health plans should also perform a financial analysis of their operations uh, to determine the financial impact of incorporating the changes called for in the act. Uh, you know, that, that would be a better practice because again, you know, being able to provide all of the identification cards that are necessary, the price comparison tools. And when you start doing price comparison tools, what does that mean um, to your financial uh, and operational uh, metrics? Um, you know, because again, if you're starting to compare prices, you know, that might you want, you want to make sure you know where you are in comparison to your peers. Um, are you way over the market? Are you way under the market? You know, those are all uh, important aspects to analyze as part of the financial and operational metrics. Very nice. No surprises. There you go. Um, okay. So I want to say it's probably been the past five years, but it's probably been closer to like a decade that there's been a transition in the healthcare from volume to value and realizing that change doesn't happen overnight. Um, and really, it's kind of a move from fee for service to value plus care. So, Benson, like what's causing this change to happen? And then um, how can health plans assist in the transition? Is there anything that they should be doing? Yeah, no, there, there is. And, and let's start off, first of all, with your first question is, why are we going through all of this? What is the you know, story behind all this? What's the background? Um, the, really, the move to value, um, we were talking about volume to value, the move to, which is, like you were saying, fee, to serve, fee for service to value-based care, uh, is really driven by the government and the industry and the consumers um, who are interested in enhancing quality and lowering costs, right? Um, so you you want to make sure that you're, you know, just as with anything else that you buy, you want to make sure you're getting good quality for your um, for your money. Well, same with medical care. You want to make sure, and and even more so because it is your health, right? You want to make sure you're getting top quality services. 
Yeah, it's not like we're going to buy cable TV. (laughs) (laughs) Hello. Yeah, well, yeah. Our our cable TV is, um, yeah, that's what you get with a monopoly. Right. (laughs) Um, But, yes, uh, the uh, enhancing the quality uh, is extremely important. And then lowering costs, right? I mean, the the curve for healthcare costs continues to accelerate. And so we're trying to slow that down somewhat. And, um, you know, part of that is encouraging, and this is all part of the value too, um, is encouraging more preventive care uh, upfront um, to minimize the severity of some of the chronic conditions such as diabetes, uh, heart conditions, high blood pressure, all of that. The more we can invest, um, and this is, like I said, part of value, the more we can invest in that, um, the, it's, it's a whole lot less expensive to provide preventive care than the care that results in chronic conditions getting out of control, right? So, right. Absolutely. And so just to, I mean, right before this call, um, you know how on your iPhone, articles pop up. An article came through and it said that, and I've not read it, but but the caption was, is that uh, colonoscopies are now, um, instead of 50 years of age, they've dropped it now to 45 years of age. Yeah. Yeah. So I, yeah I don't have any data points on, on why that is, but it, I mean, it's one of those things where preventative, if you catch it early or you know you're at higher risk, then obviously you can do something about it than, you know, stage three or four, because as we all know, that that type of cancer, um, you know, it's hard and it goes fast. Well, it, it is. So not only from a cost perspective, but a quality of life perspective as well. So right. um, the more we can, um, you know, invest in preventive care and encouraging plan participants to take advantage of that preventive care. It's just better for everyone, right? right. From a cost perspective, a quality of life perspective, it's just it's just so much better. Um, so that being said, um, you know, what what is a health plan's um, role in all of this? Uh, well, first of all, you can implement key metrics, uh, mainly around quality and cost, uh, and require providers, uh, hospitals, physicians, to maintain or ex- if they're going to participate with your health plan, uh, require them to maintain or exceed key quality indicators. Uh, and what are those key quality indicators? Those would be things like mortality, uh, readmissions from uh, e- either you know home care or skilled nursing back into the hospital. That's readmission. Uh, hospital acquired infection rates. You know, you always hear uh, it's it's uh, you want to get out of the hospital as quickly as possible because it's just the nature of a hospital that you know there are infections that um, are prevalent in a hospital-based setting. So you can get hospital acquired infections, but most hospitals are incentivized to minimize those. Um, so that's you know part of the quality indicators. But all of those things go into a health plan sort of um, pushing providers to achieve as high a level of quality as possible. Um, And by doing that, uh, you can also encourage providers to go at some level of risk on payment, right? You either meet these key quality indicators or that's going to if you ex- if you don't meet those indicators, you may experience a reduction in payment. Um, and, and also, 
uh, along those same lines, uh, you can the health plans can require providers to contain costs within established ranges by going at some level of risk on payment. So, you know, they really encourage providers to really analyze the medical necessity of doing things. I mean, you need to uh, do what is appropriate by all means. You know, if a um, level of care is called for, the providers need to provide that and the health insurance plan needs to pay for that. But, uh, you know, really challenging from a medical necessity, the, the need for some of the excessive testing and, and things like that. So, uh, those are some other things that can um, be incorporated within uh, health plan contracts with providers. Uh, they should also, health plans in general, uh, need to determine whether a focused number of providers, in other words, creating a narrow network, uh, would enable it to better manage quality and cost. So rather than having 30 different hospitals that you may um, contract with as a health plan, you may only contract with 10 uh, but those 10 are consistently at the top of their peer metrics. Um, so you can better manage your quality and costs associated with that. So that's uh, one of the other things you need to, to focus on. Yeah. And, you know, one size does not fit all, right? It, you're exactly. going to be looking at the size yeah. of the organization, geographic location um, from that perspective. Exactly. And, and you know, the your employees too, the your um, participants in the plan, right? You need to analyze what that means for them from a convenience perspective, things like that. Right. So, you know, when it comes to paying for you know, healthcare benefits, companies do have options. You know, their plan could be fully insured, self-insured or funded or, you know, a combination of those two. So self-insured health insurance means that the employer is using their own money to cover the employee's claims. We always like to throw out a fun fact while we're on the podcast. According to a 2020 Kaiser Family Foundation analysis, 67% of U.S. employees with employer-sponsored health insurance are self-insured plans. Now, that's up from 61% the year before. Most businesses with 200 or more employees are self-insured, um, with Basically, 84% of covered workers at these businesses enrolled in self-insured health plans. So over the past 15 months, we have seen a shift in you know, telehealth benefits. I've done I don't know how many uh, visits on telehealth. You know, as many employees, we were all working remotely due to COVID. So what should a sponsor of a self-insured plan be aware of you know, with regards to the telehealth benefits? Yeah, um, really good question. And it is really... You know, we were just talking about um, the pandemic and, and things like that, and we were talking about um, vacation plans. But telehealth has really grown significantly over the course of um, the pandemic. And uh, there are a couple of things to keep in mind. Uh, obviously, from a benefits perspective, um, incorporating that into, you know, we were just talking about preventive care, uh, incorporating uh, doctor's visits, doctor's office visits from a telehealth perspective, um, check-ins, um, physicals, things like that, just um, basic um, doctor's visits for allergies or colds or something like that. Um, and even from a specialist perspective, um, I can tell you personally, you know, my father and mother have uh, taken advantage of some of the um, telehealth benefits of being able to consult with 
specialists on um, you know some of the uh, medical issues that they're dealing with. So it really helps significantly, um, and, and especially if you're from in a rural environment, um, being able to um, access telehealth benefits uh, really also will help significantly with that preventive care that we were just talking about, um, because you can now access um, your doctor um, via telehealth, whereas in the past, you may not have um, really taking advantage of seeing a doctor because from a convenience perspective, it was, you know, a few hours to the to the doctor and that just was not something people were interested in doing. But now you have a telehealth where, you know, you can hop online and have those discussions. The things to keep in mind um, from a health plan perspective that, you know, is providing telehealth benefits um, two things. One, the privacy and security. Obviously, if you're using telehealth, uh, that's online. And so you really, really, really need to make sure that you have all of the um, uh, safety precautions in place from a privacy and security perspective. You certainly do not want to have any HIPAA violations or anything like that. So ensuring that the appropriate traps are in place um, to uh, make sure everyone is protected from a medical um, records perspective is, is very important. The other thing that um, you, know, you may not think about, but licensure, uh, when you are dealing, especially when you're near state borders, um, if uh, and you have employees that maybe live in one state and, and um, travel to the adjoining state to work, um, if they are accessing um, from a telehealth perspective, physicians in a different state. Uh, there are certainly licensure issues um, around that and making sure that um, the physician is appropriate, appropriately licensed uh, in the state that they're providing the care for or um, depending on, on the um, licensure requirements within the states, you know, sometimes it's where based on where the person lives and sometimes it's based on where the physician is housed, but um, there are also, from a billing perspective, claims payment perspective, the health plan needs to make sure that they, um, you know, are ensuring that the um, appropriate licensure is in place in order to be able to pay, um, pay the physician uh, for, their, for their services. Wow, lots of things to think about. I never even thought about billing and crossing state lines for doctor's appointments. Um, okay, so no one has a crystal ball, right, for COVID or when the effects of COVID may end, um, but what are some coverages or benefit changes do you expect um, to see as a result of what we just went through for the past 15 months? Well, you know, a lot of things. Um, we just talked about telehealth, so we certainly anticipate that becoming uh, a bigger uh, coverage or benefit issue uh, as part of health plans um, is expanding the use of telehealth. Um, and, and like I said, it's not only from a con um, COVID perspective and people not wanting to um, leave the house, although that is uh, certainly improving. Uh, we're seeing a lot of uh, inroads being made into getting people back out into the into society. So that, that should help. But also, as I was just mentioning, you know, um, the the COVID benefits, and you know, it's hard to believe there are any benefits of COVID. But one of the benefits is this growth of telehealth, and for a lot of people, like I was just saying, that are in rural areas that maybe 
um, haven't had as much access to uh, health care, all of a sudden telehealth is providing them that access. And we're hoping that that will lead to much better, um, uh, as I was saying, preventive care. Uh, also, behavioral health benefits. We're anticipating an expansion uh, and growth of behavioral health benefits. Uh, you know, with the pandemic, uh, there are so many behavioral health issues that, you know, um, the PTSD that that first responders are experiencing. Uh, we know that um, there have been reports of behavioral health issues for people that have had severe cases of COVID. Um, and, and just in general, I mean, now, you know, there's, there's talk about anxiety about people that have been cooped up for the last, you know, 14, 15 months. Uh, there's some anxiety about getting back out into society and, you know, uh, having close contact with others. And, you know, there, there's going to be some issues around that as well. So certainly an expansion of behavioral health benefits. Uh, and then additional coverage for other COVID-related illnesses. You know, it's it's you know, it seems like every week we're hearing about some other um, new illness that's being tied back to those that had COVID. So, I think you know you're going to continue to see an expansion of of those types of um, services for for those illnesses. Um, and then also maybe capturing some additional costs for potential provider relief fund inclusion. Um, most providers are getting um, uh, some provider relief. Uh, and and so identifying those additional costs that might help some of the providers. Wow. So we've said, right, this past year, just unbelievably all of the changes. And we mentioned the CAA of 2021 when we discussed the No Surprise Act, and now you're talking about potentially, you know, maybe new benefits. Um, we're not going to be able to cover everything on the CAA 2021 um, just because of all of the modifications. But um, if you wouldn't mind just touching on just a few areas that might relate to health plans that we should be aware of. Sure. Um, yeah, let's talk about the price and quality information. It's going to require um, employer-sponsored health plans to ensure they have access to certain cost and quality of care information and to have access to specific claims data showing the costs related to claims. Um, you know, this gets back to being able to control um, costs, right? And, and are you getting good value for your cost? Uh, so capturing the cost and quality of care uh, is extremely important. Uh, mental health parity and substance use, substance use disorder benefits. Um, again, uh, the, the behavioral health side of things um, prohibits disproportionate worse benefits for mental health and substance abuse versus medical and surgical care. So that behavioral health um, uh, care is being elevated up to be equal to medical and surgical care. Um, and then pharmacy benefit and drug costs. I mean, they're going to start capturing, you know, the top 50 brand prescription drugs, the most expensive drugs, um, the drugs with the greatest increase in plan expenditures. Uh, so there are a lot of things I think that's, you know, maybe going a little bit towards trying to um, identify if there are any opioid um, pockets that are, are, you know, higher than the norm because um, we're still experiencing a lot of those issues as well. So a lot of things going into the CAA 2021. I was just touching on the, the just the tip of the iceberg. Well, thank you so much for all this information. Um, 
it's kind of making my head spin on all, all the rules and all the changes. Um, not that I'm not saying that, you know, retirement plans hadn't gone through their own type of changes like this, but thank you so much to um, Benson for, you know, joining us today to talk about these recent changes in healthcare. We absolutely appreciate your sharing your insight. Oh, and I appreciate the opportunity to speak to everyone as well. Thank you for having me. Awesome. And so remember, you can contact the podcast at BDO Talks Arissa at BDO.com. And just a reminder, our BDO Arissa Center of Excellence on BDO.com touches on all topics, retirement and other HR trends to keep plan sponsors up to date. Thank you for listening to BDO Talks Arissa. Past episodes are available at BDO.com slash BDO Talks Arissa. Or you can go to iTunes or Spotify to rate, review, and subscribe. You can also send us feedback, questions, or ideas you have for future topics at BDO Talks Arissa at BDO.com. The views expressed by our guests do not necessarily reflect the views of BDO. For more information on BDO's ERISA Center of Excellence and the services we provide, visit BDO.com slash ERISA.